So today's message is one of those kind of, shall we say, nuanced messages that I really am hoping I can get across to you in the way that it's forming in my head. (laughs) That will be interesting. We've been talking the last few weeks about Jesus' teaching style. We've been talking about the fact that Jesus teaches almost exactly like a Zen master. He's an Eastern teacher speaking an Eastern language to an Eastern ancient audience, and he uses this teaching style that both Middle and Far Eastern uses, which is very unlike the way we teach in the West. Jesus will never answer a direct question with a direct answer. He will answer with another question. He will answer with a story. He will answer with a parable. He will answer in the way that the ancient Chinese used koans, that little story, question, or statement that would muddle the mind, that would be designed directly to show us the inadequacy of words, that rational thought is not going to take us where we want to go. In fact, rational thought is actually the problem. Our minds are the problem because our minds working linearly from you know, beginning to end and trying to put handles and, and, and distinguish things, put them in boxes, has already set ideas, set beliefs, set standards that are now becoming blockages to being able to learn something completely new. And so Jesus understands that just giving a message, just giving an answer in words is only going to be another thought in the head that is not going to necessarily get through the filter that the mind has already created. And so To answer the question with another question that throws the questioner off, that breaks the rational flow with a non sequitur into a story or into some sort of parable is exactly what the the student, the questioner needs to break the line of thought, take that quantum leap, and move into a whole new space. That is how we can finally start to understand something that comes from a completely different mindset. And let's face it, if we're after the world of spirit, if we're trying to understand the connection that we have in the presence of our God, that's been coming from a completely different place. And we need to move with that. The koan of the Chinese was used and, and instituted in order to create what they called the great doubt. Great doubt. I love that. Because the great doubt is the only place from which we can learn something that is completely new to make that paradigm shift. And so this is a huge shift in thinking for us. It's a huge shift because in the West, we're all about accuracy. In the West, we're all about certainty. We want that certainty. We crave that certainty. But what Jesus is trying to tell us is that in this life, we don't get certainty. We don't necessarily get accuracy when it comes to things of the Spirit. We couldn't comprehend them. We couldn't express them anyway. But faith is not about the belief in our head. Biblical faith, faith to the Hebrews, was actually the action that you take in the presence of uncertainty, in the presence of doubt. It's the ability to keep moving and take action that will finally lead us to trust. And so it's a very different proposition. That's why Jesus teaches the way that he does. Jesus is trying to clear our mechanisms, right? He's trying to create that great doubt in us by deconstructing whatever mental apparatus we've got going in there, whatever mental filter or mental screen that we have in place. Because as long as it is, 
Anything that comes to us from outside, by the time it gets through the filter of the screen, it's going to look like what we already know, and it won't take us anywhere. So this is what's going on with Jesus. But wait, isn't doubt supposed to be a bad thing? That's the way I was taught. How about you? I was taught that doubt is the opposite of faith, that if I have doubt, then I have very little faith. Oh, ye of little faith, right? And so doubt is a bad thing that we're supposed to avoid. I remember someone that I went to church with some 30 years ago who would always say, if you expressed any kind of doubt, even about where you're going to park your car, (laughs) doubt is a sin. Doubt is a sin. He would remind me every time. It's so interesting the way that we approach things from the way that we've been taught, the way that we have come up through whatever family church, schools that have formed us from the earliest ages, those things stick with us. They they, they don't go away. I remember in that same church, the first time that I had lunch with the pastor, and I had gone to church for a while, and then I booked a lunch with him, and we sat down. And after just a few minutes of talking to him, he said, you know what? I see divine dissatisfaction in you. I know I've told this story before, but divine dissatisfaction is the way he talked about it. No, I didn't know it then. I don't think he knew it either because he was a football kind of guy. But actually that term, divine dissatisfaction and blessed unrest, comes from Martha Graham, a great dancer of mid-last century. And she was talking about that in an artist, in a dancer, that keeps them going back for more keeps them trying to work harder to get to the next level, the next level at that, after that, that there was this divine dissatisfaction that kept them moving forward. Now, he called it divine because in me, well, it brought me to church, it brought me to him, to that lunch, beyond just going to church and sitting in there on the Sundays, and it brought me to a spiritual quest. What I had, though, was a ton of questions for him. What I had was a ton of doubt that I was obviously throwing up all over the table. And then he interpreted that as this divine dissatisfaction. And Jesus is doing the same thing. He's counting on our divine dissatisfaction. He's counting on our blessed unrest. He's counting on our doubt to bring us into the path, the way, the fold to engage us into a journey. If we didn't have that desire for more, if we didn't have that sense that there must be something more, if we didn't doubt the things and we were moving toward more and more understanding at least, what is there to work with with a teacher? And this is what Jesus is... Remember when Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but the sword and how much that messes with your head? Now, the first thing we have to understand that in his language in Aramaic, he's not using shalom or shlama in Aramaic for peace, which is the greatest amount of health and wealth and connection and, 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 and spirituality that is possible. He used shaina. Shaina means something more akin to tranquility or calm. He said, I didn't come to bring you tranquility or calm. I came to bring you the sword, which is a symbol for the dissonance, the symbol for the tension Because in following Jesus, that's what we're going to experience. There is going to be a sacred tension there. It's not complete 
peace in the sense of just calm. We don't flop down to one side or another. To stay balanced along Jesus' way is to stay on that knife's edge, on the sword's edge, to stay in that place of sacred tension. And he's trying to get us to understand that. There is a blessed unrest that persists as we follow Jesus. If we're really following Jesus, it keeps us moving, it keeps us desiring more, and it keeps us seeking. I mean, isn't that why you're here this morning? Because there's something in you that is seeking more, that something in you is telling you that there's still something more to be had, more to understand, more to connect with. And maybe you have no idea what it is, and maybe you're barking up wrong trees and all sorts of things, but the fact that it's there, that that divine dissatisfaction is there, makes you teachable, makes you connectable, brings you into relationship And so this idea of being moved into the great doubt is something that is central. We think of doubt as something bad, but doubt is central to the process. If you think about it this way, faith doesn't exist except in the presence of doubt. Any more than courage exists except in the presence of fear. If there's no fear, there's no courage. Courage is the ability to act in the presence of fear. Faith is the ability to act in the presence of doubt and uncertainty. And let's face it, there's always going to be doubt in human existence. There's no way around it. We're never going to be completely certain in this life of the things that we want to be certain of. And so since that doubt is already there, we might as well celebrate it. We might as well realize it's a motivator. It is what can be used to take us where we want to go as long as it doesn't paralyze us, and that's going to be the key. Now, you all have heard of the Doubting Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. What does that mean? It's, a, it's an idiom for us now after 2,000 years. What's Doubting Thomas? Doubting Thomas is a skeptic, someone who refuses to believe until he or she is given a personal experience. It can't be secondhand knowledge. It can't be something that you tell him or her. They have to experience themselves. Now, who's Thomas, you may ask? Well, Thomas was one of the 12 followers of Jesus, one of the original apostles. He is not talked about much in the Gospels. We only really hear three little stories, little snippets, pericopes, as the academics like to say, about Thomas. He traditionally was the one who went as far as India after the the crucifixion and his ministry with Barnabas went as far as India. And he is the apostle to the East and established the Assyrian churches and churches beyond. But canonically, we don't know a heck of a lot about him. How do you get this reputation as the doubting Thomas? Because that can't be a good thing, right? <laughs> and it's not meant as a good thing when we say doubting Thomas. Well, let's take a look at John 20, starting at verse 19. This is going to be on Easter Sunday. John says, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, the first day of the week, that's Sunday, the Sunday after the crucifixion, And when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. Of course, this is the risen Jesus. And the disciples then rejoiced when they had seen the Lord, when they had saw the Lord. Is that right? When they had seen the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them 
and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were again inside in that upper room. And Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Great line. John 20, 29. You could put that one on your fridge because it applies so much to the rest of us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So that's the story. That's the story of Thomas. You know, this and only those couple others are all we know about Thomas. Poor Thomas, huh? You know, one little mistake, you know, and he's the butt of a joke for 2,000 years. He's got this bad rap, this bad reputation for 2,000 years and counting. But here's the thing that I want to consider this morning. Was it really a mistake that he made? And even if it was, even if so, it's really unfair to Thomas, the way he's been treated as the doubting Thomas. Even though he flatly states his doubt the way he does, I will not believe unless, right? Everyone associated with Jesus also has doubts. Think about Mary. This takes place, this story takes place on Easter Sunday. It's later in the day. While it's still dark, Mary goes to the tomb. She's brought the spices with her that she purchased the night before after Shabbat was over. And she was going to finish anointing Jesus because they didn't have time. They had to get him into the tomb before sundown on Friday. And they didn't have time to finish the embalming. The, the anointing of the body. And so she's got all the spices. She gets there before dark, and she realizes the stone's already rolled away, and there's no body in the tomb. She runs to Peter and to John and says, what the heck? I think someone stole the body. And so they run to the tomb, Peter and John. John gets there first, doesn't go in out of respect for Peter. Peter goes in. He looks and sees the claws lying where they are. John goes in afterwards. Neither one of them get it. Neither one of them understand. They're still thinking, who took the body? It's not that they suddenly have this flash of insight that Jesus still lives. They're still not understanding. They're still not trusting. They're still doubting. Mary goes back afterwards, and she's just sitting there crying outside the tomb. And she sees someone that she thinks is the gardener. And it's not until he finally says, Mary, because she's speed-talking to him, right? You know, someone took my body, my Lord, and if you can help me, if you know who it is, and yada, Mary. And she stops. Rabboni, she says. Rabbi, teacher, she understands who it is now. And he has to tell her, stop clinging to me. She finally gets it, but she didn't recognize him at first. Even seeing him face to face, he cannot get through the filter of her mind. What she is seeing is not possible. 
as long as she's been with Jesus, as much as she loves him, as much as she believed everything that he told her, she couldn't get her head around this until she had that personal experience. Mary, the way she heard it a thousand times before, it suddenly breaks through to her in a way that is real. The personal experience makes it real to her. And so she runs to the other 12. Where are they? They're holed up in the upper room where they had the Last Supper, the rented room with all the doors and windows and everything shut because they're scared out of their gourd that the Jews, the guards, are going to come for them the way they did for Jesus. And she raps on the door and they open and she's speed talking again. I've seen the Lord. (laughs) They're looking at her like she grew antlers or something. She's just a silly woman. She's just emotional. She's let everything, her emotions, play with her mind. They don't believe her. They doubt still. It's not until Jesus comes that night and appears to them like a ghost through closed and locked doors that they finally recognize him through their personal experience the way Mary had to. Every person that Jesus appears to does not recognize him at first Every single one of them, whether they're on the road to Emmaus, whether on the, they're on the sh- in the fishing boat, they see Jesus, they don't recognize him, and it's not until some kind of personal experience breaks through the filter, the screen of their minds, that they finally connect and understand. Even going back further, John the Baptist, the one who leapt in utero, right? When his, uh, who, who would she be? Mary would be his aunt, comes with Jesus in utero, he leaps inside his mother's womb because he recognizes, even then, who he is approaching. And when Jesus comes to him in the River Jordan and he says, here comes the one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie, and yet when he's in prison, he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the expected one, or should we be waiting for someone else? John. Say it ain't so, man. What the heck happened? The doubt crept back in. Even though he knew who Jesus was at one point in his life, he had this transcendent experience with Jesus through the attrition of life and the things that go happening in life. And, of course, he's in prison. He's waiting for his execution. And he's not seeing the things that he expected to see out of Jesus. Are you the expected one? Or should we be waiting for someone else? Thomas, if you think about it, was the only one who was honest about his doubts. He stated them flat out. I am not going to believe until I have this personal experience. Everyone else doubted as well. Tom flatly states it, and he's been punished for 2,000 years for saying that. But what was Thomas really doing? He's stating his own divine dissatisfaction, isn't he? He's stating his own dissatisfaction and his doubt in mere hearsay, in something that he was told in a second-hand report. He wanted first-hand experience. They had had it. It was the only way they were finally able to understand. When they got the second-hand report from Mary, didn't cut any ice. It's the same thing that is happening to Thomas. And what about the, uh, that rest of all the twelve? Were they suddenly without doubt now that they had had Jesus appear to them? Let's reread. Let's reread that section, that first section, and let's break it down a little bit more. When it was in the evening of that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, 
for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced. Think about it. They were in back in the upper room. They were paralyzed with fear. They went back to their last safe place with Jesus. It's where they had the Last Supper. So they go scurrying back to that rented room. They lock all the doors. They're not looking forward to what can come. They're still looking back to what was, completely paralyzed. Notice, though, Thomas is not with them. Where's Thomas? Kind of like, where's Waldo? Where's Thomas at this point? He's not paralyzed with fear. Maybe he was running errands. Maybe he was doing, who knows? The scripture doesn't tell us. We can speculate all day long. But the point was, he was able to venture out. He was able to go out into the streets. He was able to do what he needed to do. He was not paralyzed by fear. Thomas was the courageous one. And when we look at one of the other stories about him from John 11... This is where Jesus says we need to go back into Judea because his friend Lazarus is sick to the point of death. And all the disciples are saying, Jesus, it's way too hot. Don't you understand what's going on? They are going to arrest you if you're seen back in the city. And they're all begging him not to go. What does Thomas say? (laughs) Let us go so that we may die with him. He's the one, the bold one, the courageous one. He knows Jesus' mind is made up. Let's go. So at least we can die with him. He doesn't trust that anything else is going to happen, but he's not afraid to go. This other side of Thomas is this boldness and this courage. Doubt and courage. Doubt and boldness. Seeming opposites, but they're both in one person. At John 14, the famous line, Jesus says, I got to go. Everybody's flipping out. Thomas says, wait a minute. Just tell us where you're going. Show us the way, and we'll follow you. This is where Jesus says, I am the way. He still didn't understand, but he was bold asking the way because he knew that he wanted to follow. There's this other side to Thomas that we need to take a look at. But getting back to the story, Jesus appears through locked doors like a ghost, And the first thing he says to them is peace, shalom. You know, allay your fears here. Everything is going to be all right. Shalom is a greeting, hello and goodbye in Hebrew because it's about the greatest amount of healing and wellness that is possible. He tries to allay their fears. And he shows him at the same time his hands, his feet, his side, so that they know that he's real. It's really him. He's not a ghost. He's not a phantasm. He's not a figment of their imagination. There's something solid here. There's something real. And the apostles recognize him and begin to relax. And Jesus then prepares them to take over the ministry in his absence. And he breathes on them. Kind of an interesting thing for us. We don't know. What does that breathe on him? Well, if you think back, how did God birth Adam in the garden? He breathed on him. See, in the Hebrew mind, the nefesh hayah, this, this, this living being that was Adam, is breath from the Father, animates the living being. And so it's breath that gives him life. Jesus is giving them life again, but think about it. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the second birth. This is the born again. He's giving them 
the spirit by breathing on them. Breath and spirit and wind all in motion, all the same word in Hebrew or in Aramaic. But here's a key point to understand. The breath of the spirit from Jesus' lips to them doesn't become the roaring wind of their boldness and their courage until Pentecost. There's a gap there. There's 50 days there between Jesus breathing on them and giving them the Holy Spirit, telling them receive it, and when it becomes that roaring wind that is tearing through the room that they find themselves in. And from there on, they can start their ministries. 50 days. The first 40 days are Jesus with them until his ascension. From Easter to the ascension, 40 days. We've talked about 40 before. 40 is a symbolic number. In Hebrew, it means a time of trial and testing into a rebirth. And then there's 10 more days. 10 to the Hebrews is a sign of fullness, a sign of perfection or completion. And it can be divine or it can be the perfection of man. You put those two numbers together and you get the 50 days of Pentecost. The first 40, trial and testing into rebirth, and then a time of completion into the Pentecost experience. But it's a symbolic number. We need to understand that. I'm sure that it took them a lot longer than 50 days to be able to consolidate, to reconstruct everything around this new reality that was coming into their spirit, coming into their understanding. And their doubts and their fears remained during that time. It's not like they were suddenly relieved. Their divine dissatisfaction drove them on. We see this in Peter. We don't get a whole lot of information about the others, but Peter we see from time to time in the Acts of the Apostles and in his own writings. But at one point, Peter is so unsure about whether he's supposed to eat clean foods only or whether now that he's working with Gentiles, he can eat unclean foods, that he becomes this kind of shapeshifter. When he's with Jews, he eats kosher. When he's with Gentiles, he doesn't. And he kind of doesn't tell each other what he's doing until Paul finally just calls him out and says, you hypocrite, look what you're doing. You know, you're preaching that you're going to eat kosher and that look what you're doing over here. He was doubting. He didn't know what to do. Even at the end of his life, and this is just tradition, it's not scriptural, but at the end of his life, Peter is in Rome, and the Roman government is really coming down. Nero is really coming down on the Christians, and he knows that they're hunting for them to arrest them and to kill them, and so he's fleeing the city because he doesn't want to be killed, and he wants his work to continue, of course. But as he's leaving the city limits, here comes Jesus in a vision to him going the opposite way back into Rome. And he has a famous line, quo vadis domine in Latin, which means, where are you going, Lord? And Jesus responds to him, I'm going back to Rome to be crucified again. Here is Peter doubting himself, fearing. And yet that vision turns him around. He goes back to Rome, and of course he is crucified. And Peter, being Peter, says, I can't be crucified the way my Lord is, so he was crucified upside down traditionally. But we hear these stories. We see that the the doubts remained, and they created a pattern, a pattern. The followers from Easter to Pentecost. At Easter, they have this transcendent experience. Jesus is alive. And then they have to go into this long period of trying to consolidate that into their life. How does that work? How do we respond? 
How do we work through a personal experience that will take us to the kind of trust that is represented in Pentecost, the kind of boldness that is possible when that breath of spirit becomes this roaring wind? There's a period there. Think about Paul. Paul has a transcendent experience on the road to Damascus. Here he's breathing fire against the new sect of Jesus' followers up to that point. And he has this experience where Jesus appears to him. Why are you persecuting me? But then what happens? After he goes to Damascus, after the scales fall from his eyes, after he recovers, he goes to Arabia for about 14 years before he starts his first ministry journey. 14 years there between the transcendent experience and the beginning of his actual work of consolidation, of restructuring, of deconstruction, of preparing. Think about Jesus has a transcendent experience in the river as he is baptized and the spirit like a dove comes down and he hears, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. We just talked about that, didn't we? And then what's the next thing that happens? He is impelled. The word there, expalo in Greek, is really emphatic. It's, it's violent almost. Impelled into the wilderness for 40 days. Time of trial and testing into rebirth. But I guarantee you, it wasn't just 40 days. There's 18 unaccounted for years in Jesus' life. It was a considerable amount of time before he comes back to his hometown, to the Galilee again and able to say, I and the Father are one, and begin a ministry, of course, that has rocked the world. Even if you go back into the Old Testament, think about Elijah and the transcendent experience on Mount Carmel that instituted a time in the wilderness for him. Think about Moses and the Israelites themselves after their transcendent experience in the exodus out of Egypt. And yet they had to spend 40 years, another 40, before they could enter the Promised Land. This is a pattern that we see over and over. Why is it a pattern? Why is it important for us to even think about it? Because this is the pattern of our lives. This is the pattern of the way of Jesus, the motif, the way that it'll come across to us. I have a friend who had a a near-death experience. He doesn't call it near-death. He says it was a death experience. He died. He completely died on the table, right? And yet, that happens years ago. And he's telling me now that he's still having trouble reconciling that, making that the centerpiece of his life from day to day. He finds himself even disappointed in himself because he's not able to bring the full weight of what that transcendent experience meant to him at the time into his day-to-day activities of daily living. It's amazing how this works. We can have a mountaintop experience. How many of you have had one of those? Whether it was at a retreat on a weekend or something happened, and yet by midweek, you're doubting it again. It doesn't have the same intensity. And you find that it doesn't inform your choices going on forward unless you are revisiting it over and over again. See, we think if we would have a transcendent experience like that, if I could just see a burning bush, right? That would be the be-all and the end-all. That would be the end of my journey. I would be forever changed, and I'd be complete and whole at that time. And the truth of the matter is, that's just the beginning of the journey, not the end of the journey, because the doubts are going to return. They're going to reassert themselves. Life is going to reassert itself and do what it does to us to continue to pull and pick at us. 
But the doubts must return if you think about it. They're a part of human life. The uncertainty of human life is not going to go away. That was never promised to us. But doubt is the fuel that can take us toward a transcendent experience and can lead us away from the transcendent experience in such a way that it holds in our life, that we keep using it to inform our choices, that we really do become changed by them. Doubt is that motivator, that divine dissatisfaction is what drives us on and continues to keep us free-falling into the center of an infinite God. Thomas's doubt drives him on to meet Jesus for himself. It wasn't good enough just to hear about it. He wanted to meet Jesus. And let's be really clear here. When Jesus talks about belief, it's not just about mental understanding or a mental thought. Belief, both in the Greek and the Aramaic, always includes both belief, faith, and trust. You cannot separate those. It's actually a process within a single word, moving from just a concept, an idea, to faith, the action based on that idea that takes us to the experience of trustworthiness that then becomes trust. And so Thomas is hearing words, but they're not setting well in him. They're not giving him what he really desires, which is to go all the way to trust. He needs that personal experience. He takes the faith step at that point. Coming back to the story, but starting at verse 20 this time, Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples were saying, we've seen the Lord, but unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, I will not believe. Next one. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. Important number, eight. It's the number of rebirth. Couched within the story is a second layer of meaning embedded in the numbers, embedded in the symbols. And if we know what they are, they're telling us what's going on. After eight days, time of rebirth, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas now was with them, and Jesus came, all the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst, and he said, Peace be with you again. Allay your fears. And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, see my hands, reach here with your hand, put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. In other words, do not be untrusting. This is real. It's as real as real gets. You can trust this. You don't have to worry about it. Because you have seen me. Have you believed? Are you trusting now? (laughs) Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. That great statement. How do we trust without seeing? See, this is our dilemma now. We're not going to be able to see Jesus as Thomas saw Jesus. How do we trust? Trust only comes from a personal experience. That personal experience of the trustworthiness of anything is the only way that we will eventually trust it. You came in the room, you plopped down on these chairs, you didn't think about it. You trusted the chair because your personal experience is that that chairs will hold you up. 
until the first one breaks underneath you, and then you're going to be testing chairs for a while until you build up your trust. It's the same thing with people, and it's the same thing with our God. We need personal experience to show us the trustworthiness. But even without a peak experience like Thomas had, like the disciples had, like Moses had, a transcendent experience, we can still have the personal experience that will take us to that place, that place of trust. And Jesus says we're blessed when we do that. You and I, propelled by our doubt, propelled by our divine dissatisfaction, with any kind of secondhand report, with just even the words of Scripture being read to us or reading, realizing that there's even more behind those words, behind what we've been taught, the dissatisfaction, the sense of blessed unrest propels us to an actual personal and living experience with our God in our life, in our prayer, in our relationships. And what Jesus is telling us, this is the only way to the Father. No one comes through the Father but through this personal experience of me. That's what he's trying to tell us. We don't need the transcendent mystical experience, but we need the personal experience that will take us into that place of trust. There's one more detail here that I want to tell you about because I think it's important. That line there. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus. Okay, Didymus. There's a, there's a word for you. It's a Greek word. You know what it means? It means twin. This is Thomas' twin. Thomas the twin. But it even gets deeper than that because Thomas itself comes from the Aramaic word, dauma, which means twin. (laughs) So Thomas Didymus is actually twin, twin. And was Thomas a twin? There has been endless speculation over whether Thomas was an actual twin or not. We don't know. We don't have any evidence of it. But still, he's called twin. Tradition tells us that his name was actually Judas. And it's stated in the writings of the church fathers and elsewhere in non-canonical gospels like the Gospel of Thomas, same Thomas, that his full name was Thomas Judas Didymus, which would literally be twin Judas twin. (laughs) But the point is, is that it's starting to look like the twin is a nickname. The twin is a title. It's, it's not necessarily literal, but there's something going on here. Why would Judas's or Thomas's nickname be twin? Now, some say, and this is all pure speculation, but it's ancient speculation. It's kind of interesting. Some say that he looked so much like Jesus that he was actually called his twin. Some say that his personality, his makeup, his character was so much like Jesus that he was called the twin of Jesus, and that became his nickname. We don't know for sure, of course. I think it's more along the lines of Zodiac, Gemini. You know about the Gemini? Third sign of the Zodiac? Guess what Gemini means? Twin. It's Latin this time. The Geminus is, is, is uh, a twin, and Gemini are twins. That's the plural. It's Castor and Pollux. The constellation uh, is a twin from ancient Greek mythology. But the idea of The Gemini personality is like two personalities in one. It's like the the holding of opposites, the holding of paradox in one person. 
kind of never know who's going to show up. You know, I think with Thomas, he had these two sides of his character and, and personality that have been preserved for us for 2,000 years in the scriptures. One of courage, um, boldness, and one of doubt and skepticism. And holding that tension, I think, was part of the reason that he was called a twin, or maybe the full reason he was called twin. I don't know if that's true. But to hold paradox, to hold seeming opposites in one embrace, is really the secret of life, if you think about it. We've talked so much in here about Jesus' idea of kingdom as being now, but also not yet. How do you hold those two in one embrace? How do you live completely immersed in now and at the same time be working for not yet, be working for things that are going to change circumstances, realizing that there are things that are incomplete and yet be fully embraced in the now, fully immersed in the now, realizing that this now is just enough for us. It is full. It is abundant. And yet we're still going to work for more. Between process and outcome, two seeming opposites that pull us apart into a dualistic experience, but if we can hold them in one personality, one embrace, be fully invested in the process, even as we work for the outcome. Faith and doubt itself. How do we keep showing up to things for which there is no evidence, but that we are convinced are true, even in the presence of the doubt and the uncertainty that we are constantly experiencing in life? The secret of life is being able to bring these together, to hold them together, to realize they're never going to be resolved, but they don't need to be. That we can learn to love the oscillation of life as we move back and forth between these two. But for Thomas, even his doubt is infused with courage. And I want you to think about that. He states it boldly. He owns it, and he moves on it. Thomas is fearless about his doubt, if you want to put it that way. His doubt doesn't paralyze him. It doesn't keep him in the upper room with the doors locked, looking back at the last time that you felt good, rather than being able to move forward into the unknown. What does this actually mean about Thomas? It means that Thomas was faithful. Thomas had the ability to act in the presence of doubt, Thomas does that. I really think that Thomas is our twin. The scripture is giving us a model, an image, a symbol of the dilemma that each one of us faces as we try to synthesize these things in our own life, to hold these seeming opposites together. And as Thomas's twin... Can we make friends with the great doubt? Can we accept life on life's terms even as we realize that the hope is there for change? Can we be fearless about our doubt? Can we let our doubt be our fuel, our faith fuel? Because faith can only exist in the presence of doubt. Can we let that doubt, that uncertainty that we feel, drive us to the experience of God's trustworthiness that will allow us finally to trust so that the breath of spirit that we have gotten so far can become the roaring wind of our Pentecost. Never 
dispelling the doubt that we feel through our lives. And yet, without clouding the now, always drive us on to the not yet. This is Thomas, his legacy, and what he can give us if we can learn to practice a fearless doubt that takes us where we really want to go. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be able to break down deeply embedded beliefs, biases, um, prejudices, like the one that we have against doubt. Help us to see that whatever doubt we feel is proof of the faith that we have when we still can move forward with you. Help us to understand that doubt and uncertainty are motivators and tools that will bring us closer to you if we just let them. Help us to let go of the fear we have over the things that we think we believe and realize that in you, everything becomes good. Everything becomes another draw toward your spirit if that's the way we approach it. That's the spirit in which we want to address you, Father, in each moment of our lives. Help us to relax. Help us to be gentle with ourselves and give us a break and realize that in that uncertainty lies the seeds of a deeper connection with you. So, Father, once again, thank you for the transparency of our scriptures. Thank you for the honesty of our scriptures that show these heroes of faith in all of their frailty and all of their humanity so that we can see how it applies. We can see ourselves in that story and then turn it into the actions that we take with each other and with you. Thank you for all of this, Lord, especially your love and your constancy. And never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. All right. Let's all stand.